Hello and welcome to part three. Caroline and I are here again and we have Anya and Ted and we're going to talk about resiliency. And if you haven't seen the previous two episodes in this series, please go back so you get a nice overview and we touched on security. And one of the things that we did in last episode was introduce a whole bunch of acronyms, a whole bunch of topics. And I found that the scenarios that you all shared, tying it together just in my human brain, uh, especially the exam question, made it easier for me. So if you don't mind, maybe in this episode, we just start off with a scenario, you know, like what is resiliency? That sounds good. What is resiliency? Um, what every human being needs in 2024, Ted. You know, bes besides being, you know, 26% of the scored content of the Solutions Architect exam, uh, what is it? You know, is it a service? No, it's not just one. Um, it, it, it's a variety of services. And I think beyond services, it is an architecture method. And I think we start talking about things like, building infrastructures that are scalable and loosely coupled. You can also add things like highly available, right? Those, yeah. all, those concepts tend to be all verbalized in the same context. Yeah. Uh, we want things to be fault tolerant. You know, we, we have our, our, our quote that I hear all the time at AWS is everything fails all the time. When we build our products, we have to account for those failures and we don't want the customer to feel those. You know, things should be able to fail. Drive should fail. Computers should fail. Okay. So I just, I want you guys to break it down for a second because when I had just graduated from college with a computer science degree, it was really hard for me to wrap my head around resiliency because I had grown up with computers and I didn't understand the concept of downtime. I was like, if there's a service and it's 99% available, like when could it ever be down? Like it was really hard for me to wrap my brain around it. It took a while. So can you, for, for those of, who are listening, who are just starting out in this industry, can you, can you explain it a little bit more? One, one example would be, you know, if, if customers are hosting uh, their infrastructure that supports their services and applications, um, in a data center, that's very common, right? Like on-premises, we would call it. They have some resources in there. They have servers. They have load balancers that distribute load over those servers. They have databases, storage, et cetera, right? So what they have to do is they do, they do a lot of configuration in order to set that stuff up. And they also have some kind of capacity, right? Like those servers can take a certain amount of load based on you know, the number of CPUs they have, the amount of RAM they have, like how big their disks are, that sort of thing, right? All of that kind of ties back to uh, the hardware, right? So if they went and purchased a bunch of, you know, servers, a bunch of storage, and they put it into their data center, it sort of kind of caps out at a certain amount, like it, you can take only a certain amount of load, right? So because eventually you're going to be running out of memory, loading your CPUs, etc., so think of a scenario when you have to take, for example, a ton of load, like spiky load a lot for something like a big event. Let's say you're doing some kind of retail sales and you know Black Friday has this huge influx of users trying to buy stuff because you have like this fire sale of 50% off and everybody's just flooding your website 
and you have to be able to take some massive spikes. Or like, let's say in healthcare, right? You have like annual registration periods for, you know, healthcare, um, uh, your healthcare plan, and everybody's just flooding your servers, right? So if you're on premises, if you, if you run out of capacity, for example, or something actually fails, and like you don't have time to go and fix and like change out the disk drive in your machine or like switch out a server, right? That could be a problem. So what we mean by resiliency is to be able to do that transparently so the customer doesn't actually know that something is going wrong, like something's actually broken. Like they can continue experiencing great user experience with no delays, no outages, no errors in their browser without, you know, feeling that on the front end. So that's kind of what we mean by resiliency under these extreme conditions, like heavy load, spiky load, uh, influx of users, right? So this is one thing that AWS really uh, helps you to do and architect for those things. Yeah. Um, and I, I think when we're looking at the exam and, and we're trying to architect for this, where we start is really in our geography. Where are we going to place our load? We're no longer in this uh, single environment, a, a single data center, or even if we had multiple data centers, how does our resilience change when we move to the cloud? And, you know, we have some specific terminology that we use in AWS that's good to know. Uh, we, we start with a region. Uh, choose, and we have over, we have 33 regions as I, I speak today, uh, with, with four announced under development. Um, but where do we choose and how do we choose where our data is going to go? We want resilience, but I also want to make sure that it has low latency. There might be regulatory reasons why I choose one region over another. Uh, so I, I have to choose the appropriate region. And, and I, I sort of define this region as, as a geography to get to availability zones. And what's and an I, availability zone, Ted? What's that? And what's an availability zone, Ted? Ah, well, it's not just region. one data center. I think of it as a virtual data center because it's one or more data centers that work together to house our infrastructure. Each region has multiple availability zones in the same geographic area. And I'm gonna say that uh, availability zones are connected with dedicated uh, network connections. They are on redundant power grids. They are isolated. If there was a, a fault zone, like in California, they're gonna be on either ends of uh, either sides of the fault zone. Um, so these are, are built for redundancy, but they're built close enough that there is ultra low latency between these. So as I, as I mentioned, everything fails all the time and we want to build resiliency for our core infrastructure. And there, there are several ways to do that, but one of the, the core ways to do that is to duplicate your infrastructure, have multiple servers and multiple availability zones in the same geography. Uh, use a load balancer to distribute traffic between the two of them. At AWS, our load balancer isn't some little box that's uh, sitting on a shelf. It is a highly available, scaled uh, VPC component that we're using. You know, and these are sort of regional in scope. So we want you to be able to build the, this resiliency uh, and also leverage, you know, 
our global infrastructure, I'm sorry, and also leverage things like Route 53 as, as a global DNS service to route to these this redundant infrastructure. Yeah, and just to kind of go back to our example, right, when we have um, a ton of load coming in for a specific event, if you're in one place, like a local data center, if something fails there and you don't have another data center that you have set up or enough servers within that one data center, you could be in trouble, right? Because then you might not be able to handle the load that's coming in. If you're doing it on AWS, back to your point, Ted, if you are leveraging a deployment with multiple availability zones and you have servers in two, maybe three availability zones over which you are load balancing, in that case, if you're taking huge load, you can effectively load balance across them. And even if you have an outage in one of those availability zones, then the other ones will just naturally pick up the load and it'll be transparent to the customer. And I, th I think a key component with this is, along with load balancing, we have to think about auto scaling. And, you know, I, I think back to when I was a systems manager years ago at, at a large law firm based out of Miami. and. Um, I just remember buying servers and I was never buying capacity for today. I was always buying capacity for 18 months from now because I knew when I purchased a server, it was going to show up in parts over 30 days. I'd rack and stack it and I'd finally get that thing installed and, and ready. And that had to last me until my next PO got approved. And usually it would be, you know, about 18 months is about the lifespan I would get on a server in those days. Now, as we move to the cloud, we're just using what we need. We don't have to forecast. So when we need to scale out, if we had uh, an issue with routing traffic or, or a failure with one of our instances in a separate availability zone, the other instances can scale out. The load balancer can work with auto scaling to scale out our infrastructure. So, Ted, I want to bring it back to the exam because you said a lot of interesting things, but I'm studying for the essay exam. I'm honing in on the resiliency piece. Wait, how much percentage of the questions fall in this category? What's the percentage of questions? Uh, the percentage on, you know, when we talk about resilient architectures, we're talking about a little over a quarter of the exam, 26%. That's so that's a lot. And, and there are a lot of topics, you know, there's sort of like an acronym soup here when we look at the... Uh, uh, exam guide, which we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, you know, one other concept that I think is really important to understand uh, when we talk about highly available and fault tolerant architectures is understanding disaster recovery strategies for the cloud as well. DR. Yeah, DR. And there's terminology that's associated with that. What is our uh, recovery point objective or RPO, and what's our recovery time objective uh, or RTO? And, and basically, that means how often are we backing up our data? And if we have to recover data from backup, how long can we afford to be down? So, I think this is something that like took me a little bit to wrap my head around. If you guys are seeing the common theme, I'm a slow learner. Um, so, like, can you put this into a scenario like? have this application, it goes down. And I think talking through it might be helpful for other people. Like it was helpful for me to understand like, how come my RTO can be 
larger or less than my RPO? And like, why is that okay that my app can be down, but my data was backed up way before that? You know what I mean? Right. Right. So, you know, I, I can think of an experience that I had in, in the past. I, you know, I put my back my, myself way back to my uh, systems manager roles. But I, I remember one Thanksgiving weekend, I left a data center and uh, I had alerts going off on my pager at the time. That's dating this. Uh, and uh, what had happened was the data center had... Uh, um, I had redundant AC units, I had fire suppression, all of that, but there was a water main break and no water came in to the AC units and they both shut down. Uh-oh. And the whole data center was down. Uh, and I, I got there and my server room was about 140 degrees and I had to start shutting things down. And so I shut down everything in the room and uh, and you know that's okay. And then when I went to bring it back up two days later, Okay, so we had an incident, uh, and we were down for two days. And we had no choice but to be down for two days because we didn't have time to bring our whole systems back from backup at that point. Then as I, I brought everything back up, we found that one of our RAID 5 redundant arrays of, unexpected, of uh, inexpensive disks had a dual drive failure, which meant I had to recover from tape. And, and that's not quick. So I had I had backups and I had backups on disk. Uh, and then I also had backups on tape. But to recover from tape took me 12 hours to spin tapes and I had to get infrastructure. So when I looked at my recovery time objective, it's just how long did it take me to get back in business? And uh, the server that I lost was an accounting server. So we were actually able to stay in business, just not bill anybody for a while. <laughs> so but that it, was about I, two and a half days, Ted, right? So if you're saying it took about two and a half days, that is our recovery time objective in this case, correct? Yeah, exactly. Now, how much how much data did I lose? Well, we were making tape backups. We were backing up to disk and then making tape backups every day. Um, I had the tape backup was good. So my recovery point objective was I could lose a day's worth of data. Okay, how much could I I afford to lose? Now, the problem that I have in an on-prem environment is that it's hard to get those numbers small. And the smaller you you your goal is to get those numbers, the more expensive the solution is. So if I want to work, can I have a recovery point objective of one minute? Yeah, possibly. Maybe I'm running replication from one region to another okay at least across multiple availability zones sure maybe we can talk a little bit about how some of the aws capabilities allow us to decrease this recovery time objective and recovery point objective yeah yeah i think that again back to everything fails all the time if i have multiple instances running in the cloud, a lot of what we do in, in AWS is we sort of, um, yeah, I'm going to hold on for a moment here. And I'm searching for a word and I don't have it. Um, the word is ecstatic, Ted. I am ecstatic. From the previous paragraph, I think you lost your train of thought. Yeah. I was saying, can we, so can we uh, talk a little bit about how some of the AWS capabilities help us reduce the recovery time objective 
and the recovery point objective that you had in your example. I, I think of some of our, our services like EFS for Elastic File Store. So now my, my data is redundant across a minimum of three availability zones. Okay, same thing with if I'm using S3 to store, you know, as an object store, my data is automatically redundant. So I, I think that if I have uh, things like that, if I'm looking at servers and I have uh, load balancing and auto scaling set up in multiple availability zones, you know, that's going to help us out a lot as well. When we talk about how we scale out to be resilient, a lot of times we're going to do what we call horizontal scaling. Let's add boxes or add instances to improve our capacity that we can service. Okay, rather than necessarily vertical scaling where we just add CPU and memory. So essentially horizontal scaling means that we are just adding more and more and more, essentially horizontally, so to speak, spreading our infrastructure versus exactly. vertical scaling where we take the one like one server and they horizontally add more stuff, more CPUs, more RAM, more disk. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, when I look at how our storage is designed, like, for example, S3 is designed for 11 nines of durability. Okay, which, which I, I think is an insane amount of uh, durability. And when we talk about building a durable infrastructure, we're saying that if there is something that causes this to be unavailable, like we have a network outage or something like that at the client, the data is still there. I have a question for you too. When it comes to the exam question, is does it just throw out how to make a resilient architecture or are there going to be keys around, oh, this is, this is a workload, right? So I need to scale out or, oh, this is about geographic failover. So it's going to be on availability zones. How do you think about that? Or is it vague? I guess maybe if it's multiple choice, it's going to show you kind of the questions. You're like, okay, this is about data. This is about reliability. Um, you know, how does that all wind up in the actual questions themselves? So the actual question is going to give us a scenario. And I've got a, a sample exam question that we, we could go through. Um, yeah, go for the sample exam question and then tie it back into the scenarios. Because I think this is one of those, um, we had Laura on and she would go around and do uh, all of these workshops on resiliency. And it was exactly what you're all saying. It's like, what does that mean? It's one of those words that can be so vague. And it's one of those words that's up to you as your company about how resilient and within those categories you want to be. So taking the scenario as we're going along and the exam question, I think it would be beneficial. Okay. Yeah. And let's Caroline, start with... you're not a slow learner. You're a correct learner. You're asking questions. And that's the, I, I've always, my entire life, I never ask questions. I don't know what it is. I think it's this INFJ thing where I think that if I just have enough time, I'll go figure it out on my own. But I wish I would ask the questions. And that maybe that's why I do podcasts, right? So I can just ask you all questions. And that's my way growing. <laughs> you know, the, the other thing that I always get is I get people that say to me that I'm not a developer. And they, they oh, yeah. and they say that because they didn't get a degree in computer science, so they obviously are not a developer, right? Yeah. Um, but I hear that one a lot too. So, um, but yeah, Car Caroline, you're awesome. So, anyway, so let's talk about uh, let's do a, a sample exam question. Um, 
I'm excited, Ted. So let's say an organization has a two-tier architecture that's running in public and private subnets. Amazon EC2 instances running the web application are in the public subnet, and an EC2 instance for the database runs on the private subnet. All instances are running in a single availability zone. What steps should a solutions architect take to provide resilience for this architecture? That's a great example. Ties directly into our example with the data center that is taking huge load, right? So here's where my head goes, right? Like I'm taking this exam. I see two-tier architecture. And immediately I'm like, hmm, we're going to have to do something different with these two things. Maybe they need different strategies. Maybe they need different mechanisms. And then like, where do I go next? That's like my first key. Guide me through what my thought process should be after. Well, I, I think when we look at this, we have, you know, two different areas that we have to look at for resilience. We have two tiers, so two different areas, uh, a, a public facing side and, and a private facing side. So the EC2 instances are running in the public subnet and the database runs on the private subnet. So if I have a single server for the database, I'm not happy with that. Why so, not? What makes you concerned about... The one what, if, what if there's a problem with, I don't know, network connectivity to a whole 10-mile radius of where this database is? And this is my production uh, database. What options do I have? Let's say I'm running uh, an EC2 instance for the database. What are some better ways to run a database on AWS rather than, I don't know, managing an EC2 instance and installing my database software and keeping it patched. That, right? Uh, we're talking about the compute tier here and we're talking about the database tier. So you kind yeah. of need to think about both, right? So we were mentioning availability zones and that's something that would allow you to spread out your load, right? In right. case something happens in one AZ, you can have the other one pick that up. So you can certainly utilize the concept of multiple availability zones and, and load balance across your uh, web application servers in your right. public subnets, right? So that would be something that would help you out there, right? Uh, for the database, right, since you're running it on the EC2 instances, you could theoretically approach something similar and deploy your database on multiple instances, but it actually happens to be so that AWS makes it easier for you, right? So you don't do more work. Like, I mean, if you just like doing work, like by all means, but we're trying to make it easier for you so you don't do as much work. And this is where we have this concept of managed services come in, right? This is services that AWS provides out of the box. You click, 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 set stuff up, and it sort of takes care of it for you. So in this case, uh, essentially a managed database service, we call it uh, RDS, um, would or we have other options as well. I'm just kind of giving one option here. Uh, we have also um, Aurora databases that AWS provides that would allow you to run your database and not actually worry about the underlying server, right? Because it's going to be managed and patched for you. So that's something definitely to consider here because resiliency is kind of built into those things. Yeah, I was thinking for the database tier, that multi-AZ, if, if the person was, you know, really wanted to have, and, and they didn't want to go to Aurora for whatever reason, and they wanted I don't know, a MySQL, Postgres, or a Microsoft SQL or Oracle database, 
on, on their tier that uh, they could run that with multi-AZ so they have a failover that is directed by DNS, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, I also thought, you know, when I look at this question and they're running the web application on the public subnet, I don't know that I, I necessarily want to make EC2 instances if I'm running EC2 instances for the public side. I don't know that I necessarily want to make them publicly available. Great point. You know, I may, I if I use load balancing, I can target private subnets and allow just certain ports in. Yeah, so, so you could theoretically you use um, a load balancer in your public subnet, and as it happens to be, the load balancer service is a managed service that AWS provides, which is again great. It provides you with ninety nine point nine nine percent uptime SLA uh, in a given month, so it's already highly available. And then you can target your multiple uh, EC two instance servers in the private subnet, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, and I think you know if we tie this back to disaster recovery, you know how do we make sure that this uh, we we have this uh, infrastructure backed up? If we're using RDS, the backups are sort of taken for us, and uh, we can do point in time recovery if we should have a failure, because failures aren't just if something happens. What if? I don't know, uh, terrible Ted, the, the database guy isn't all that great a, a database guy. And he, he drops the tables and makes a, a bad mistake on the production data. Yeah, well, the other thing to keep in mind is you also have to uh, kind of go back to the qualifier in the question, right? Like if there is something like a qualifier, like cost that would say, can you improve resiliency, but have the most cost-effective solution, something like that. Um, that's something to keep in mind. And we'll really go back to the disaster recovery strategies as well, right, Ted? So you yeah. were saying that if we want to have a disaster recovery strategy that minimizes our recovery time and recovery point objective, it might cost us a little more to have something that's up and running all the time, like an act, we call that active, active recovery, right? But we can also have something that minimizes cost, if that's what the question is asking about. If you're looking for more cost-effective solutions, we definitely have some options for that, too. Uh, and that could be something like a backup and restore strategy, right? So we can take backups at regular intervals, and that would store these backups in something like an S3 bucket, for example. And that would still allow us to recover from those backups and restore but it would cost way less to keep that running live all the time as in an active, active strategy. And so I think a good way to think about this, and, and the exam will cue it, right? Like we were just talking about those different qualifiers. It'll say most resilient, like lowest recovery time, and then or we'll say the most cost effective. But I think when you start to relate this back to your to your everyday life and you know probably the purpose of why you're taking this exam, I think you could think of the different types of data that you're storing, right? So if it's a transaction log, people are making payments, right? It's probably worth for the business to invest in in making sure that we have the lowest amount of recovery time possible, right? That we have that point in recovery time and we, we capture as many transactions as we can in the case of an outage. But for something like maybe my user profile preferences or my profile picture, right? Like it's maybe not worth it for us to spend so much time to make sure that that 
was all saved, right? Maybe a day is okay. Maybe two days is okay, right? It depends on your business. But I think relating some of these different scenarios back to the different types of data that you're storing helps me wrap my head around it. 100% agree. And I think that goes back to um, classifying the data that you're dealing with, right? Some Some data is naturally going to become more sensitive for your business or more important to retain and have more frequent backups on. And some data just doesn't change as much. So you could um, choose different types of storage tiers for it, which would help you save on those costs. So just kind of keep that in mind as you're looking for uh, the answer option. Yeah. And if I were to take our scenario question one step farther, you know, where, how would I take this two tier architecture with web servers and databases? and make it even more resilient is maybe I would re-architect it eventually. Maybe I'd make it a little bit more cloud native and serverless. Um, So instead of using web servers, if I have static content, maybe I'm sharing it through S3 and accelerating it through CloudFront. Um, Maybe I'm using Lambda functions for the dynamic content. Uh, With Lambda, I'm going to scale. Scaling is built into it. Uh, and as events come in, Lambda is going to scale to accommodate. Uh, those Lambda functions will scale to accommodate our traffic. Yeah. So I heard you say events, Ted. Can you just expand a little bit on that or what you mean by events coming in? Um, so if, if I were having, uh, if I were building an architecture server serverlessly, I would probably have. Uh, an API gateway accepting traffic coming from web browsers across the internet. And then the API gateway, if I went to example.com slash login, we could direct that traffic to a specific group of microservices, a specific group of servers, IP addresses, EC2 instances, Lambda functions. Uh, And then if I went to another URL in that domain, we would have other functions that we could direct traffic to. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just thinking of how could I, you know, sort of loosely couple these components, let them all scale independently and also possibly drive the cost down as well for doing it. Yeah. So in the scenario that you're giving where we are essentially responding to these different events taking place, uh, architecting this uh, with this pattern of microservices and Lambda functions could actually be very beneficial in terms of saving costs, right? Because how Lambda functions run, they're only billed for the time that they're run, right? right? Versus running something like an EC2 instance, which is on all the time and keeps billing you for the time that you're using it. So that's a very different architecture pattern, but could be very beneficial depending on what, uh, what your priorities are. Yeah, I, th- I think of EC2 instances as taxis, you know, and, and I'm I'm getting billed for that taxi, whether I'm, I'm moving or not. You know, I pay per minute or per hour for an EC2 instance, whether I'm doing something productive with it or not. With a Lambda function, I'm just paying for, you know, round up to the milliseconds that, that I've run times the amount of memory that I've allocated. And that's it, you know, and, and on this Note, I, w- I want to mention, we're, we're all studying for an exam here. How do you get some uh, decent time with Lambda functions or EC2 instances and not pay a lot? 
Uh, so I would be remiss if I didn't talk about AWS free tier. You know, uh, aws.com slash free. Uh, there are, you know, you can run some small EC2 instances. You can run 3.2 million minutes of or seconds of uh, compute through Lambda every month. And uh, how do I get access to that, Ted? You just sign up for an account and it's good for the first year your account is running. And there are different ways that there, there are savings there. Some are 12-month offers. And for the first 12 months, you get XYZ for free. And some of them are always offered. So uh, for Lambda, I think the first uh, 3.2 million seconds per month is always free. That's awesome. Five gigs of S3 storage. And so well (laughs) worth looking at. When I was initially, before I worked for AWS, when I was getting my solutions architect associate uh, knocked out, I I wanted to do it as cheaply as possible. So I made sure I had a free tier account. Uh, I just, you know, opened up an account with a different email address, and that's how I. Oh, good. Uh, I'm good for a year. That's how I grew the Alexa business. I just went around and told everyone to do free tier. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it was a great way to just learn. I I have a question for you. I remember sitting at reInvent, and this truck comes out. It was super cool, right? And I was like, wow, look at them doing that on stage. And it was this, and I love the name. I love the name Snowball because it made me think of cold and freezing. And I always think in terms of images. It, are long-term storage like that and moving things uh, you know, off the cloud and into somewhere else, do those type of questions come up on the exam around this section? Or is that in a different area? Like, do they not consider long-term you know, off-cloud storage as part of DR? I don't, I haven't seen it in the questions. I guess it could be. It's a, it's a fair game right. question. I I don't know if there's a question or not on that regarding Snowball. But uh, Snowball is in the acceptable topics to come up on the exam. Uh, I've I played with a couple Snowball edges and, and, and they're sort oh, of nice. cool. You know, let, yeah. me, let me copy terabytes of data and... You know, the, the concept of snowball edge is sometimes the fastest way to transfer data is UPS. You know, uh, I have so yeah. much data to transfer. Let's, uh, you know, plug some fiber into a box, spin it up, copy over from our data center, maybe even process that data. Yeah. And then ship it off. And the next day they're loading it into your S3 bucket. So we were doing a uh, episode with... Um when we were we're talking about Amazon Q and Morgan said, because she does a lot of training and during COVID, there was so, because you know how long training videos are, that it's exactly what you you said. She was actually shipping them over UPS or through the mail versus trying to do it through an FTP server because it was taking way too long. So I had customers that presented at reInvent and they had done this big migration and they were talking about it and they were bank. And so like, Everything was super secure and like lots of regulations and a ton of data, right? Because they have to keep that data for a while. Um, and they were really excited to bring a snowball out on stage. But it, it was like, I don't know, you guys can't see me, but like this big, like my arms with wide. And what I didn't realize is that it was actually just the shell of this plastic container. It wasn't the actual hardware inside. So my client or my customer gets up on stage and I'm like, oh no, she's going to like break her back. She's like lifting it over her head. And little did I know after she was putting on an act and really it was, it was empty. It, it oh, that's me. awesome. <laughs> it got me. 
No, they're, they're pretty cool. I do a, a class for our public sector uh, customers where we, we move data using them. And it, it, they're sort of fun. They sound like a jet engine when they're warming up, though, uh, with all the fans in them. And uh, a, a cool piece of trivia on them is that the very top of the display is e-ink. It's an actual Kindle in there. So when you're ready to ship it back, it just turns into a, a UPS label digitally. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's just a Kindle e-ink display up there, which is pretty cool. Okay, so resilient architectures. Before we, you know, wrap up and sign off, any last tips or tricks you want to tell our listeners to uh, get them to yeah, well, the I, I've got to plug my my other technical trainers who are doing some solutions architect Twitch shows, uh, and we're going to put these in in the show notes. But uh, of course, there is the AWS Power Hour for the associate certification. Um, and then we also have an upcoming course that's probably dropping and, and starting just as this episode drops. And it's called Get That Badge, AWS Well-Architected. And one of the cool things that we have out there are these Credly badges, which are digital you know, representations or certs. And when you pass your certification, you'll get uh, a Credly badge that you can put on LinkedIn and tell all your friends. You know, everyone can verify that you are a solutions architect. Well, along the way, there are other badges that you can earn. And so these Twitch shows will talk a lot more detail about that and go into some of the topics. That's awesome. And for anyone who's listening out there, I like to put my Credly badges in my email signature just to give myself that little plug. Um Anya, anything from you before we wrap up this um, this third episode? Well, uh, I think there's definitely a lot to cover, and you know, it was it's really fun talking about these topics. Uh, we can dive into these topics in any great length, right? That like one show is definitely not enough, but it's it's just so important to be familiar with these. But it's just so important to be familiar with these topics, not just from the point of view of the exam right? Like when you're talking to customers, this stuff actually comes up. So the exam will be testing you on things that are actually real life type scenarios where customers are trying to um, modernize their existing architecture with the least amount of effort, but become more resilient, or actually are trying to migrate onto AWS, or are trying to completely re-architect their stuff to be more cloud native. So being familiar with those things is actually very important. Like it's not just, you know, answering multiple choice questions. I think that's great. I think it's a great reminder to recenter ourselves, remind everyone why we're taking this exam, right? Because it's so important to the day to day and and what people are doing out in the field. So um, on that note, Anya and Ted, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your wisdom. I feel like I can go out and take the exam now. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Dave and Caroline. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks to your boat. This is uh, this has been wonderful. I'm. Uh, do we want to talk about what some of the next topics are going to be, as a teaser, have it, or have we not thought about that yet? Well, I've got them. I'm just going to open up. I've, I've got three I'm more excited topics. Ooh, like yeah, holidays. Me, yeah, bring them up here. Hold on one second. I've got all the topics here. I just have to bring them up. And I'll, I'll I go ahead. I'll put percentages some. with each topic too, Ted. Because I know it's 30% security, 26% resiliency. No, I'm just teasing yeah, you if you don't know. It's them. 100% awesome, though. Yeah. Okay. So when, when we talk about what our next topic is going to be, next up, so there are 
four domains on, on this exam. So we, we talked about high-performing architectures. Our next domain is designing cost-optimized architectures, and that'll be 20% of the exam. Excellent. So we, yeah, so we talked secure architectures. We've talked resilient architectures, actually. Next up is high-performing architectures with 24% of the scored content, and then design cost-optimized architectures with 20% of the content. Awesome. I am looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.